0: So well, as our custom, let's stand and read the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them to, if they remain, even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. Lord, as we read 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to find out as a church that the issues 2,000 years ago and what was going on in the church then and their culture is very the same as it is today. And as Solomon wisely said, there's nothing new under the sun. And so we look to you for guidance and wisdom as we hit our third sermon in this series on marriage and divorce and remarriage and even singleness. And we just look for your wisdom and how to appropriate these truths to our own lives as we work through these issues as a church and as people from the community come into our building, Lord, that we know how to help them if they're facing really hard situations. And even for good marriages, Lord, brothers seems to be Minimal issues, Lord. These teachings are still very prevalent for us. And this is not just only correcting problems. This is good wisdom for everyone to listen to. And none of us are exempt from these truths. This will touch in everyone's lives. So we're looking forward to your spirit speaking to all of us today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, welcome everybody, as we continue in the third part in our sermon series on divorce and remarriage. Uh, Before we begin to look at the specifics of our passage today, though, I want to give you a bit of background on what the Corinthian church was like in the days of Paul. Corinth was a port city located on the coast of Greece. Uh, I looked on the map last night, just for interest, it's 83 kilometers exactly on Google Maps from Athens to Corinth. Uh, by today's transportation mode, one hour drive in the car. Being a port city, uh, Corinth was a major center for trade as it attracted many visitors and merchants year-round. But with the influx of tourists, though, although it was good for business, it also created a certain culture in the city. It was a party town. It was basically the stampede year-round. So much so that according to every commentator I've read, or pastor I've listened to of reputable um, uh, reputable status, uh, they said that if you were known in, the, in that world as an immoral person, and you were loose on morals, you were called a Corinthian. You were called a Corinthian. To act immorally was to Corinthianize. Okay, so in the known world around there, Corinth had a very good or bad, depending how you look at it, reputation about their immorality. But it wasn't only the location of the port city that contributed to that belief. It had to do with the particular god they worshipped. See, the temple of Aphrodite was in Corinth. And Aphrodite, according to Greek mythology, as you're probably all aware, is a goddess of love. The goddess of love. So, if you were to go to Corinth and you were a pagan, part of the way to commune or to worship this god of love was to unite yourself with one of the many prostitutes of the temple that day. And that's how you get to commune with her so sex and worship were tied together very much in the corinthian culture so let's just say when paul first arrived in corinth looking to plant a church he had his work cut out for him he had pretty much the sodom and gomorrah of the gentile world but there was another influence in their lives that impacted the corinthians view on sex and marriage And that had to do with the Greek philosophy that permeated their culture. You see, the Greeks believed in something called dualism. Dualism. It's the belief that the world is made up of two components. On one side, you have the physical, visible, material world. And on the other side, you have the spiritual, immaterial, invisible world. So when it came to the human body then, and how they viewed their body versus their soul, they had this dualistic approach. So here's how it worked if you're a Corinthian. Because your body was physical and temporal, and you recognize it was ultimately in a state of decay, and had these evil desires, when it came to the body, it was just merely a covering or a shell for the soul. So your, your body is nothing but a hindrance to this life. The soul and the spirit, however, that side of a person was of great value and great importance. And because it wasn't temporal, but eternal, and it was the part that was going to eventually touch heaven, it was extremely important to you. So the result of this dualistic approach then was the soul was of great importance, and the body was nothing but a nuisance. Now this influenced how they viewed sex and marriage, and there were two schools of thought on this. There was the Epicurean view of Greek philosophy, since the earthly body was unimportant, you could do whatever you wanted. So the model would be, we'll go something like this. Sex is like an appetite. When you need food, you eat. Likewise, when you need sex, you go have it. This is reflected in chapter 6, verse 13 to 16. Let's turn it to me there. Look at this. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both. If the body is not for morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take them away? And, shall I take them away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be! Or do you not know that those who join themselves to a prostitute is one body with her? I mean, why is he teaching on this? Would I have to teach you as a church not to unite yourself to a prostitute? Of course not. Why to them? Because in a dualistic mindset, your body means nothing. It's my spirit I'm trying to protect. So if I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, that's all that matters. My spirit's taken care of. So I'm going to go like crazy in the sexual arena and do whatever I want. Stoics, on the other hand, believe the opposite. Sorry, they believe the same truth about the body, but it was reflected differently in how they use their body. So, Stoics believed, again, that the body was evil and corrupt and a hindrance. But what they wanted to do then was to prove that they could master it. They wanted to give up. They didn't want to give in to their sexual desires and their lusts. So, what they would do then is deny the flesh. And they would say, don't feed the body because only the spiritual matters. So, their model was something like this. Sex is dirty. Sex is defiling. Sex is something to be ashamed of. It negatively impacts your spirituality. So if you really want to be holy, abstain, abstain from go celibate, whether you're single or in marriage. We see this attitude reflected in 7 verse 3. I'll read that with you now. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and the likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Okay, why tell them that? Because they were depriving one another, <laughs> right? And part of it is too, is because of their belief you know, that comes out of Greek philosophy. So what's very interesting church, even though it's a different culture, a different time period, written 2,000 years ago by Paul, the prevailing attitudes in Corinth towards sex are really the same two attitudes we have today in our church, in our culture, isn't it? Here's the two attitudes that permeate our culture. Go ahead and have as much sex as you want. It's not hurting anybody. You have, a, you have an animal to feed. and feed it, right? If you're hungry, go eat food. Like, go for it. That's totally our culture in one way. The other side, which is often sadly in the Christian families raising their kids, you should be embarrassed about that. We don't talk about that in our house. We're, not gonna, we're just going to have that one talk when you're 13 and never again. And you should be ashamed of it, and so on and so forth, right? So we have this pervasive attitude uh, in our culture towards sex as well, and even in the church. Go for it, or you should be ashamed. It's the same thing. So what Paul has to say to Corinth is very relevant for us today. So enough waggling on the tea, but that's very important, I think, for you to understand what's going on here, to understand what Paul's dealing with when he shows up in Corinth. And just for interesting, I, this is not in my notes, if you ever want to see the Epicurean Stoic uh, philosophy in practice, he debate, they debate Paul in Acts chapter 17. They're actually debating Paul in Acts 17, and it actually says there the Epicureans and Stoics were talking to Paul. And what is their issue with Paul? He, they, he speaks the resurrection. The resurrection and the body and the spirit are going to be united. Why does that matter? Why would they have a problem with that? Because the Epicurean Stoics think the body is immaterial and gods, the gods don't care about it. And so they think he's teaching these strange things by teaching resurrection. And he's saying, no, no, no. These are important things. Uh, God does care about your body. And that's why he have to do so much teaching about the body to the Corinthian church. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Lord? So it's act 17 starting from verse 16 to 32 a great read and you can see this philosophy playing out in in the culture And he's debating in Athens 83 kilometers away from Corinth very interesting Okay, let's dive in Let's read one and two Now concerning the things about which you wrote it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The first thing that we need to establish here is what did Paul mean by "it is good not to touch a woman"? Some of you in your translations, do you have the word "marry" there? It's good not to marry. Okay. So, does anybody have "good not to have sexual relations"? Okay. So we have three versions good not to touch good not to have sexual relations good not to marry pretty big difference (laughs) it's good not to marry a woman versus not to touch a woman pretty big difference don't you think in application (laughs) probably good for us to decipher first what does the word touch mean i wish it was going to be that easy to tell you what it means i actually came into this sermon confident i knew what it meant and would have taught a men's bible study But exactly what paul was saying and after studying this week i've actually come to maybe a different conclusion and that's the joy and the beauty i have of having to do all the work (laughs) but i'm going to present both sides of the coin to you and you are going to make up your own mind because the holy spirit gave you a brain and he gave you power to decipher for yourself and i'm going to give you both sides and you can you will. well we can even hash it out in dialogue the first view is the what i would consider the majority of pastor's view um, everyone I've listened. In fact, this is I've only heard this ever taught. Let's put it to you that way. What I'm going to present to you, the second view, is only in my own studies. So I stand alone at this point, very much in this category. But the majority of pastors you will listen to will teach that the word "touch" means sexual relations. Okay? It's good for women, a man has to have sexual relations with a woman. The reason being is touch is a euphemism for sex in the Bible. Consider Proverbs 6. Can a man walk on hot coals? And his feet not be scorched so as the one who goes into his neighbor's wife whoever touches her will not go unpunished okay you can read between the lines there in ruth chapter 9 boaz sees her in the field and uh boaz sees ruth in the field and he's already smitten with her And uh, he basically says, go ahead and you can eat from the field here, all, of my, all the grain and extra food I've got here. And he says, don't worry, I've commanded my servants not to touch you. And again, we can read between the lines, Boaz didn't mean they weren't allowed to play tag in the field. Right? It wasn't a big game of it. He was saying, I'm not going to let them like, have sexual relations with you. You'll be safe here. Which makes sense. She's a Moabite woman in Jewish territory. She's a foreigner. So when Paul told the Corinthians it was good for a man not to touch a woman, what he was really saying in, in these people's opinion, is that it was good for a single person not to have premarital sex. It was good for a single person not to have premarital sex. And some of your translations lean this way. In other words, they were saying this, it was good and right then for a person who was single not to have sex, meaning a life of celibacy was okay to choose. It was okay to be single. It was okay to be celibate. That was okay in God's eyes for the kingdom. However, Paul at the same time was, was not uh, like he was clever. He knew that wasn't the norm. He knew that most people couldn't do that. People couldn't stay single typically because the general rule was if they did that, they would fall into sexual morality because they have these sexual passions and desires. And so he says because of immoralities, each one of you is to get married. You're to have your own wife. So celibacy, for the sake, for the celibacy, was a good and right thing to do. You could, don't have to go into sexual relations with a woman. However, that's not the norm. You should get married, and the reason is, is, because you'll likely fall into sexual sin if you don't. And God didn't, Paul didn't want that actually, because then you'd be guilty of a sin, which was called fornication in the Bible. The second view is, uh, I suggest, not to marry is not correct either. If you have your Bible says that, that's a poor translation. I think the second view is something I discovered in my own studies was this. When he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, he actually meant not touch a woman. Physically, literally. Here's why. When I did the Greek word study for this word, when I looked it up, in every usage, every usage in the New Testament, with the exception of this place, it had had nothing to do with sexual intercourse. Nothing. Every instance in the New Testament, with the exception of this place, nothing to do with sexual intercourse. I'll give you two two references. Luke 7. Now, when the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to him, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is, who is touching him, that she's a sinner. Of course, this is the woman who wipes his hair, or his feet with her hair, and and pours perfume, and uses her tears, and so on and so forth. And she basically is prostrate on his feet. Well, she's not sexually relating to Jesus in that, in that scene. She's physically like, at his feet, showing high emotion in her affection for him. Consider John twenty seventeen. This is Mary Magdalene when she sees, uh, or when Lazarus has died. And she finds Jesus and she says this. Stop, or she goes, oh yeah, she grabs Jesus and starts grabbing at the legs. And he says, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascended to my Father, and your Father, and my God, and your God. So clinging here is the word touching in Greek. So you have a woman, the prostitute woman, um, basically weeping at his feet and emotionally affectionate with him. You have this woman here clinging to him. So when you see this, there's no sexual intimacy going on here at all. It's a physical contact with, with Jesus in both situations. So when Paul said it was good not to touch, he wasn't commanding that you shouldn't touch. I command you never to touch. He was saying, it's good not to touch. It's good wisdom not to physically, just like like be physical touching with females if you're in a courting relationship. Because the reason is, verse 2, over time, if you continue down that path, it could lead to sexual immorality. And that makes sense, doesn't it? In a lot of ways, those of you, don't put up your hands when I ask, when I sort of like ask this question and answer this question but, <laughs> but you already know who you are anyway and uh, I can relate being engaged to Janice. but those of you who are engaged and dating as Christian couples how easy it was it to basically keep your hands off of one another in a dating relationship no problem right absolutely no problem you could sit watching a movie in the couch and it was just like being with your grandpa and your grandma <laughs> right of course not Little, little hold of the hand, little arm around, next thing you know getting closer, next thing you know the movie, you forgot what it's about, you're laying down, next thing you know you might be kissing on the neck, and next thing you know, oh my goodness, the touching, went, how do we get in this situation? And Paul's saying, it's probably good not to touch a woman, because it could lead to sexual immorality. <laughs> All right? So that's my own study. You can do that if you want. Um, I, I, I think Dan Jansen and I are the only ones who taught in this way on this on this word um, But I've listened to other people and I, I see the validity in, their, in the first argument for what touch means But the Greek word in my study that shows nothing of sexual relations So either way the lesson's the same either way Paul's teaching is the same if you're single Don't have sex outside of marriage if you're burning with passion in that way for goodness sake get married get married so I'll speak to you single people. Uh, don't do long engagements. Well, I, I, you know, when people in our, our, our culture, like it's all about, like, people say, oh, I'm getting married. And they say, when do you get, when's your marriage? Oh, like two years from now. Two years from now? Yeah, two years from now. Because they're already engaged in sex, so they already have nothing holding them back. With Christian couples, God doesn't want us to be fornicating, so don't do long engagements. If you get engaged, I would suggest three months, four months, just get married. Or, here's a different thought. This is something that came to me this week. I've never thought like this in my life until this week. Um, I thought, why not just tell a couple who wants to get married to get married, like, even in a month? But what you do is you just have a small ceremony, have a covenant relationship. To to, as a pastor, I'll come to your living room, Your parents can be there, I'll marry you, and then six months from then, have a giant party where you wear the dress, wear the kilt, or the suit, or whatever you do, and uh, I wore a kilt, that's why I said that, Uh, and so, um, yeah, you go ahead, six months later, have the giant party, invite 200 guests, and then have the marriage, why not? Who cares? For, for the bride especially, the guy the guy doesn't really care. It's the girl that really cares. She wants to be seen in a beautiful dress and have all her friends and family there. So what I'm saying is, if you can still look beautiful, have that day in the park, and, uh, but still present yourself with no option for committing immorality. So just a thought. You know, you're probably not going to listen to me. You're probably still going to wait it out for six months and then come to me later going, man, I wish I took your advice. <laughs> anyway, those of us who are married know exactly what I'm talking about. So you can choose which one you think is the more option or the better option. Although, either way, Paul's concern for the Corinthians was obvious. He wanted the single people to maintain sexual, sexual purity until marriage. Sexual purity to marriage. So back to the text then. So these single people were, were to abstain from sex until marriage, but what about once they were married? What were they to do then? Well, Paul makes it clear that there's a particular duty a Duty that each spouse has to have and let's just say it wasn't that they were responsible for picking each other's socks off the ground There was more to do with the activity that landed their socks on the floor in the first place look at verse 3 the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband the wife does not have authority over her body but the husband does and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control what was the duty that each spouse was to perform well pretty obvious sex sexual intimacy and for one major reason failure to do so on a regular basis was going to give the devil the devil a foothold in that marriage incredible teaching from Paul isn't it considering the Corinthian context see they thought that with, by withholding sex in the marriage union that sex was a that was a godly thing to do to protect the spiritual and deny the flesh, what a godly, holy thing to do. Somehow elevated their spiritual status by denying their fleshly desires. Paul says this not only are you doing what is ungodly by withholding sex, you're actually a, you're actually in agreement with Satan when you do that. So you're actually on the devil's team when you do that. You're not on God's team when you do that. That's an incredible teaching. Furthermore, Paul says to them, you need to change your attitudes towards how you view your bodies within the sexual arena. He says, you know, you might think that you have full authority of your own body and you're an individual and so you have the right to do what you want. Actually, I'm flipping this on you. Your spouse has authority over you. Your spouse has authority over your body. In other words, when you got married, you handed over the sexual keys to your partner. Said, this is the keys to my body. And then this other spouse said, these are the keys to my body. So once we got married, once you got married, once the Corinthians got married, we handed over the right to our bodies and we said to our spouses, you have authority over me. Again, massive teaching from Paul. They didn't have the right to do with their bodies whatever they wanted, even though they thought they did. Their their spouse had a say in this. Their spouse had a say. The exception was only one thing. There was an exception. A time of prayer. We see that. In verse five, now he doesn't tell us the type of scenarios that lead a marriage couple, a married couple, to go into prayer. He doesn't tell us that, but I'd imagine it was probably something like this: like maybe there was a family issue going on where there was they were desperate for the Lord uh, in His intervention. They just wanted to stop so they could focus on praying together for maybe one of their children, or an uncle, or an auntie, or a grandma, or whatever. Maybe it was for a time of mourning; someone had died, or someone was sick, and they were just crying out to God in extra time uh, praying. Maybe there were situations in the church where there was sin in the camp and they're looking for to just come together as a church to, to unite and the family would go home after and the husband and wife to spend more time praying over church situations. We don't know. But here's the point. Paul said you can come together to do this. However, he basically had a couple caveats here. One, when you do that, you both have to be in agreement. Right? Stop depriving another except by agreement. Both spouses have to say yes, not just one. So one says, I want to pray, the other says, I don't want to. Okay, you don't stop. (laughs) You both have to be agreement, number one. Number two, number two, you it has to be for a short time. A short time, not a long time. Right? Just for a time. Very short. And thirdly, make sure after that time is completed, you come together quickly. So after you've done that, you make sure you unite together. So how does this apply to our church? Well, in May, the women are going on a spiritual retreat to um, on May 26 that weekend, and by agreement, you, you're, as a husband, you said, "Go ahead, have those three days away and have a great time, be getting spiritual renewal, drawing close to the Lord." So Paul would say, great, you both agreed. So when you come home, you know what to do. When the men go away in the houseboat in September, you both have agreed on that. And so it's a time of spiritual renewal. You've put in some prayer over this issue. And uh, when you come back off of the houseboat, you know what Paul's command would be for us to do. You should be thankful you're hearing this. (laughs) At least some of you are thankful anyway. But in all seriousness, we need to take Paul's instruction to heart. Because the area of sexual rejection is a tremendous source of pain. Tremendous source of pain for so many Christian couples. So many Christian couples, this is a tremendous source of pain. And not just for one reason, it's multifaceted, so I can't get into all the reasons. I mean, perhaps though, there's some reasons like this, like there's been physical, there's been sexual abuse or, or other kinds of abuse in that child's life. And so they grow up and they come into a marriage situation and they dysfunctional sexually because of the abuse they suffered as a kid. Often because of marriages, uh, when they fight, there's a lot of unforgiveness and bitterness between couples. And unforgiveness breeds, breeds basically rejection because you don't want to be emotionally connected to your partner and unforgiveness is a barrier to intimacy. Also, shame-based thinking from being raised by our parents. They basically raise us, either verbally or non-verbally, with cues that sex is something to be ashamed of as a Christian. And we do, uh, as parents, we can do a bad job often with the way we raise our girls and boys and the way we make them think about and approach sex. And so we bring those into our marriages. For example, you've been told your whole life, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And then you get married on your wedding day, and all of a sudden, you can. But you have no idea what to, what's going on emotionally, because you've been, all you've been told is know your whole life. As opposed to being helped through what God actually wants you to do, and how to think about it. We've, we are to prepare our, cho- prepare our children as, um, as parents. But these are all the kinds of issues that, that can, can play into this area of rejection. And here's the thing. The Lord doesn't want us to have, a, to have the devil have a foothold in our marriages. And it sets the table for a spouse to go after means of fulfillment. If you're not getting this regularly, you will go after another person for that means of fulfillment or another thing. So for a man, this is general. I know it can play out both sides. But for a man, generally, they can turn to mental adultery. Right, the internet, movies, pornography is a way of fulfilment. Or, they have a long-term, at work, they go after a co-worker, because this co-worker is appealing. And the reason is, is often for men, we're respected at work. Men are usually respected at work, and uh, when things aren't good at home, what are we there? Disrespected. So what happens? You're disrespected at home, but everyone respects you at work. And this one girl at work really respects you, and so you—the devil sets the table, and she becomes very interesting to you because you're finally getting what you want in fulfillment. And the next thing you know, you're doing things that you never thought you'd do. A woman can do it as well in the same arena, but typically women have um, commit mental adultery, usually emotionally. They start about thinking what it be like to be with another man. They get sucked into chick flicks flicks and romance novels. And they wonder why his princesses, their knight in shining armor, seems to be on vacation. Again, she meets a person at the place of work. And this man is finally emotionally bonding to her the way she's always wanted to be. She's not getting it at home, and next thing you know, she's off doing the devil's work in her own life as well. And I can keep going on this, but for the sake of time, we can move on and talk about that more in dialogue if you like. So again, Paul's saying, don't be like that. As Christians, make sex a regular part of your marriage. Don't give the devil any temptation. Don't let him set the table in anywhere of temptation for you guys to fall. So, in continuing on with this then, let's read what Paul has to say now in verse 6 and 7. And so what he says, But this I say by way of concession and not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. When Paul said, I wish that others were like me, he wasn't saying this. He wasn't saying that they, he wished they were all people like him and that they were going to live a life of celibacy. His point was this that they were, he wished they were like him in terms of having the gift of celibacy from God. Paul had a gift of he had been given this gift of celibacy, and so he's saying, I wish that people were all like me in terms of being in a celibate state. It's what we call in the church the gift of singleness, the gift of singleness. And Just like marriage is a gift. So is singleness and this is new teaching because in in that culture singleness is not always um, Something that's elevated and here Paul is saying you can be a Christian and be single and that's actually a good thing You can be like me in that way and that's a gift from God and because singleness came with certain benefits Singleness came and celibacy came with benefits look at verse 32 with me quickly in chapter 7 But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is, un- is concerned about the things of the Lord, and that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. See, being single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom was a good thing. If you had that gift, it's a good thing because your interests aren't divided. They're not divided. You can spend um, your full devotion to living out the ministry God has in your life. And when you're married, you can't. Because you have to take care of your kids. You have to take care of your spouse. And so you can't always just deal with the things in the church or the ministries God's laid out for you. After being single and now married, I totally get that. Uh, This is not a complaint because I don't have the gift of celibacy. So I'd have another complaint if I was single. But but I, I literally would have between two to four hours more per day to serve you in the church if I was single. I'd have anywhere from two to four hours per day more for you to serve you in this church because I spend that much time with my wife and kids per day on average. That's that's at least two other discipleship meetings right there. Or me studying something else in the Word of God to make me a better pastor and teacher to help you out in your own lives. Again, it's not that it's a bad thing that I'm married. It's a gift. It's a beautiful thing. It's God's natural design. But someone who's single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom can devote themselves and their full energies to serving the Lord in those ways. And Paul says, I wish you were like that. I wish you were like me in that way. Not, not any other way. Okay? He wasn't uh, elevating himself as a spiritually elite person. He was just saying marriage is a gift, but so is singleness. And here's why it's a benefit to you to be like me. So in continuing with Paul's teaching on celibacy, he then addresses two particular single groups within the Corinthian church, 8 and 9, look at this. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widow that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So the two groups he's addressing are the unmarried and widows. These are single people. Now remember in verse 1, it says that Paul, Paul here was addressing questions that the Corinthians wrote him, right? He says there, now concerning about the things which you wrote. So clearly, people who were widowed and single were asking him, what do we do with uh, our single lives in terms of like what it looks like in the kingdom of God as Christians, as Corinthian Christians? Now the widow group is obvious. Um, the widows obviously are women at one time who were married, who had lost their husbands prematurely All right, but who are the unmarried who are the unmarried and this is a debated question And I'm going to present to you what some people think and I and I'll tell you who I think they are and I'm open to more teaching on this, but I have a hard time defining exactly who these people are But I'll tell you who I, I'm pretty confident to say that they they're not Here's who I think the unmarried here are not. They're not single virgin people and you might think they are, but they're not. And here's the only reason why. Look at verse 25. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. Look at 34. Here's a slam dunk. And his interests are divided. He says, The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about things of the Lord. Why did he put unmarried and virgins in two separate categories if they're the same thing? Why not just say, Now to the to the unmarried, or to the virgins, I I say this, or there's a command here. He distinguishes between unmarried and virgins in verse uh, 34 intentionally, and 35. And in 25, when he says, concerning virgins, I have no command, he's speaking to them now as a separate category of people, as previous. Because Paul's dealing with questions, so he's addressing group A, group B, group C, group D, and so now he gets the virgins near the end of his section here. So to me, that only leaves two groups. That only leaves two groups. Widowers. Male widows. Right? Widowers. And that would make sense in context, but I say to the widowers and to the widows. Right? Or it could be single, non-virgin people. People who have, like, like who have, like, you know, they may be 26 years old and had three or four partners in their life, but they've come to Christ and now they're living a life of celibacy for the sake of God. And so he hasn't addressed them yet because they don't have the gift. (laughs) So now he comes and says to these people, the unmarried being single, non-virgins, or or widows, what their command is to them. Now, John MacArthur uh, says that he thinks they're divorced people. They can be divorced people. Uh, I, I can see why he says that, but I would suggest they're not divorced people only for one reason. In verse 10... He starts giving specific instructions about divorce and remarriage. So to me, to me, just contextually, he's going into that category later on. But he may be right. But again, I think the context to me suggests more the other two categories. But again, you got the Spirit of God and you're thinking people, so that's what it is. You can make up your own minds on that. But regardless, the instruction is very similar to verse two. Verse 2. To the single people. He says, if you're unmarried, if you're single and you're widows, stay like I am. Again, because you can serve the kingdom of God and be fully devoted. However, if you do not have self-control in the sexual arena, please don't try to fight it. Go and get remarried. Get remarried because you're not, you're going to, I love the line here, you're going to burn with passion. Like a picture, an image with a guy like basically on fire. His hormones are like so enraged, the guy's like literally on fire. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, well, you guys and girls know what it's like to burn his passion in uh, different areas and times of your life. I won't have to get into that. <laughs> Usually when I go down those trails, I get into trouble and have to apologize the next week, so I better just keep my mouth quiet while I'm ahead. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so here's what he's saying. It's the same, same uh, instruction that was the single people um, in verse 1 and 2. So Here's a the conclusion then let's go back to the two Corinth the Corinthians views on sex one Deny the flesh because it's spiritual Two, engage in the flesh because it's spirit because it doesn't matter You're still spiritual, right? Look at Paul's answer now how he basically says to both groups. You guys are both wrong You guys have completely missed it. No matter which way you look at it. He says this His answer is straightforward to those who deny the flesh because you think you're spiritual, he's saying this. If you're single and celibate because you think it's the higher spiritual ground, you're flat out wrong. What you're doing is setting the table for sexual immorality. Unless you have the gift of the celibacy from God. Then singleness is a good option because you can devote yourself fully to God's work. Now for those of you who are married who have to deny, deny the flesh to you, If you think by denying the flesh and abstaining you're acting in a godly manner, you're actually kidding yourself. You're aligning yourself with Satan. So get back together with your spouse on a regular basis. For those who believe in the feed the flesh view who were single, he's basically saying this. uh, Sexual intimacy as a single person is not permitted under any circumstance unless it's within the confines of marriage. And if you're really burning that badly, go ahead and just get married and knock your socks off, literally. <laughs> if you're married, stay committed to one spouse. Stay committed to one spouse. Make, and make sex a regular part of Christian life. Don't go looking for prostitutes. Don't go looking for other women and men. Stay focused. Stay committed. And stay um, united as one front. You see how Paul's teaching was so radical in its day based on the temple of Aphrodite being in the culture and being on the, in the biggest port city with sailors and all the sexual promiscuity and immorality and seeing how the Greek philosophy was permeating their mindset towards sex and marriage. And Paul is saying, here's God's view. Here's God's view. And it was radical, radical to the church. And it's radical to ours as well. Totally radical to ours as well because our culture is very much the Corinthians in their views and we're not operating the way God's design is. It may not may that not be said of us in the Christian church. And when you raise your children up in the ways of the Lord, make sex and these, and marriage and these conversations a regular part of conversation to give them God's view constantly about this subject and don't be ashamed of it. Because they're thinking about it all the time anyway. So why, why put your head in the sand and pretend like it's not happening? Fight it head on. Lesson one: What should we learn? In God's design, sexual intimacy is to occur only within the confines of marriage. Verse two: Because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. Verse five: Stop for depriving one another except by agreement. In verse nine. Better to get married and have salt and, and then burn with passion. All right, sexual ministry is the occur only confines of marriage. Why is that? Well, that's another sermon some other time, and uh, we're actually going to talk about that a bit in our men's group. So, if you want to hear about that, come to our men's Bible study on Tuesday night. We're going to talk about the purpose of marriage and why God designed it that way. But I don't have time to get into that now. Lesson two. Singleness is only recommended for those who have the gift of celibacy. Otherwise, every single person should seek to get married. Again, singleness is recommended for those who have the gift because you can devote yourself to full-time work in the Lord's ministries. However, most people don't have that gift, so you should seek to get married. So how do you know when you have the gift of celibacy? How do you know? It's very obvious. Do you burn with passion all the time? If you, have the, if you burn with passion, you don't have the gift. It's simple. And there's a no little spiritual revelation. God's not going to tell you in a dream, I've given you a gift. He's, you're going to know. You're going to know. And for those of the... For all the for, yeah, as far as I know, everybody in here doesn't have that gift from the conversations I've had. So That makes it easy for you. But if you do, don't, don't not heed Paul's instruction, because maybe he has a plan for you that he, you could devote yourself to the full-time ministry. In, well, not necessarily the pastor, but full-time ministries that God has in store for you. I also want to say this, that singleness is not a state of, not a state of being spiritually elite. So if you think, oh, I'm, I'm single for the kingdom, I'm spiritually elite, you're not. Because married people can do just as much for the kingdom in many ways. It's not a state of, of spiritual elitism. It's just a gift from God. I want to say one other thing about this, though. This is very important because in the Catholic Church, sadly, the priests have been basically forbidden to marry. And these people don't have the gift of celibacy. The reason why the Catholic priests get in so much trouble is they burn with passion. The problem is they go after little people often a lot to fulfill that need because they know they can't have a real wife and So if the Catholic Church would just heed Paul's instruction, they would eliminate half the moral problems they have in the church Lesson three The advantage in having a gift of celibacy is that it allows a person to devote themselves fully to the Lord's work with no distractions I've already mentioned this in different ways but it's really funny in verse 28. you gotta, you got to hear this. <laughs> Paul's like a straight shooter. Listen to this. If you marry, you have not sinned. And if the virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. <laughs> <laughs> that's Paul. That's not me. I mean, I wish I... I mean, it's typical of me to say stuff like that. But that's Paul. What is he saying? Marriage is great. But man, it comes with a lot of trouble and heartache. Amen? Okay. Amen. So... You know, he recognizes this. A guy who's single or a girl who's single doesn't have that problem. The only problems they have is their own, like, relationships throughout their, own, their day or their own attitudes toward themselves. But they're not trying to deal with stuff at home. Okay? So there is an advantage to being having this gift. <laughs> Lesson four. With the exception of an agreed time of prayer... Regular sexual intimacy needs to be maintained as part of every Christian marriage. With the exception of a time of prayer, regular sexual intimacy needs to be maintained as a part of every Christian marriage. Key though, the key in this is that it has to be both agreed upon. If you go to prayer, it has to be a short time, and yet to come together once that time is done. And they actually call it a duty. It's our duty as Christians to do this. Because we don't have authority over our own bodies. The wife doesn't have the authority over the husband, and the husband over the wife. They have the keys to our bodies. And he's saying, Make sh- they can open the lock when they need to. <laughs> Alright? But again, stumbling blocks to this for us as Christians, are past, both in abuse or shame-based teaching, these things can be hindrances. and Often too, men and women failing to understand the, the opposite sex in terms of what... what appealing to them for example men are very visual men are very visual that we we can remember images and things for for years and and months and so on and so forth when women are in marriages are are sort of shy and bashful and kind of like timid they basically want to hide and so the men want more and they don't give it to them so again um it, it can be very difficult because the man is hoping for for more in that regard and the woman's very pass, passive in that regard And usually again, it's because of past upbringing But again a woman can really help a man out in terms of not setting the table if she is visual and gives him visual pictures and things like that And being respectful at home is key too because he is respected at work I promise you is respected at work and if he's not he comes home pretty miserable every day telling you about the stories but generally, people are respected at work, so they want to be respected at home, and it would be less of a turn-off. Women, however, they're more emotional in needs. A, a better visual for a woman would not be him flexing in mirror, but him picking up a vacuum cleaner and doing the floor. That would be a better visual for a woman than, than, than anything else. They want help around the house, they want the man to be basically uh, emotionally bonded. And it's funny, you know, this is true of Janice and I, it's true of many couples. When a couple fights in marriage, this is a general rule, not the the 100% rule, but the general rule is this. If there's a fight, if a woman offered herself sexually as a way of mending the fight, the man would take it. The man would take it because he would feel emotionally resolved by having sex as a way of dealing with the problems in the marriage. He'd, he'd think, "Oh, there's resolution." The woman wouldn't even offer her body then, because she needs to have the emotional connection to even have sex in the first place. So, see the difference? A man resolved can resolve conflict through sex. A woman resolves it through the emotional side. So, again, if we're if a man's not emotionally engaged then she's never gonna, she's gonna, you're going to set the table for her to want to resist you. So there's just so many, there's just so many multi, multifaceted approaches to how to deal with this. But it's important then that we obey Ephesians 5. Men, love your wives like Christ loved the church. What's the key there? Unconditional, nourishing, cherishing. These, we have to nourish and cherish our wives. You set, if you do that, you will open up the door for her to want to give herself freely. Men and women, respect your husbands. He gets respected at work, respect them at home. He gets enough visuals at work and in the mall and on the the TV and in movies. You also want some from you as well. These are some of the keys to um, helping each other have regular sexual intimacy so that the devil can't set the table in your marriage. Finally... When Christian couples do not, sorry, do not engage in regular sex, they give Satan a foothold in their marriage by allowing him to set the sexual temptation table for their spouse. That's a mouthful, but it's straightforward. And I kind of brought it up in lesson four anyway. Now again, I want to listen to me very clearly on this, because you might be hearing me wrong. I am not saying this. So I'm not saying this, that if your spouse sins in the marriage, it is your fault. You hear that again? It's not, you're not responsible if your spouse sins. That's them them, and that's between them and God. However, clearly from Paul's teaching, we can help our partner in not going down that path.